You are listening to the Macro Trading Floor. This episode is brought to you by Saxo Bank. Hey guys, my name is Andreas Steno and um, I want to say welcome to the Macro Trading Floor once again this week. Uh, what a week it's been um, and I look forward to debating it with, uh, with you, Alfonso, because it's been a pretty violent week in uh, markets. Guys, off speaking, welcome to the Macro Trading Floor from my side as well. Um, We're recording uh, on the 22nd of September, it's immediately after uh, the Fed meeting quite an historical meeting. I think the, the end of the press conference was the most interesting part. I mean, they hiked 75 basis points, okay. But the most interesting stuff was in the dot plot, the summary of economic projections, and in the press conference itself, I would say, Andres. The thing that struck me the most was Powell basically using Draghi's jargon. At the end of the interview, it was like, uh, our tightening path will be enough to bring inflation down. Trust me, it will be enough, which is very similar to the language Draghi used in 2012 when he was trying to save the euro. Powell is trying to save the Fed's credibility in fighting inflation at the end of the day. And I remember, Draghi said something like, within our mandate, we'll do whatever it takes to save the euro. And trust me, it will be enough. So what is this? Whatever it takes, 2.0? Yeah, kind of. Uh, I, I mean, I think it's sort of the perfect anecdotal evidence of the sort of shift in the incentive structure for a central banker when inflation is running below target and when inflation is running way above target as currently. I mean, they could not care less about your portfolio, about the price of your house. Uh, I mean, let me just emphasize this. They could not care less right now because the only thing that they will be blamed for is the inflation. They will not be blamed for, for creating a recession. They can always uh, say that it's um, a recession made by um, external factors, etc. But they will be blamed if, if inflation doesn't go down to 2%. And that's exactly why they, they have this tone right now. Um, they couldn't care less about the two of us. They, they want to bring inflation down. They couldn't care less about our audience about portfolios, about markets. I think this is a, a material shift of, of rhetoric. I agree. And actually in Jackson Hole, he, the speech was basically what he tried to convey yesterday as well, but doing that in a Federal Reserve meeting, press conference setup, I think it's even stronger because it gets accompanied by other evidence. Okay, the dot plot is a terrible prediction of what the Fed will do, <laughs> it never realizes. Yeah, yeah. But at least it's a signal that with together uh, with today's set of information available to FOMC members when they're asked to go to the drawing board, with today's information, they come up with that. And that is no change in the long run nominal uh, Fed funds rate, which means they, they don't expect any regime change. Two and a half percent, three percent is where they think in the long term neutral rates are, which makes the dot plot or the, their medium projections for this year and next year all the way up to 4.6%, quite a restrictive um, uh, policy. But also the interesting thing is that 12 out of 19 FOMC members, so quite the majority, are expecting Fed funds to settle with today's set of information, eh? always that, but still at 4.6% by the end of 2023. So that's tighter for longer. That's what they're trying to come up with. And Wow, I think risk assets as well are uh, feeling the heat a little bit. And bonds too, by the way. We should talk about those guys too. Yeah. I, I mean, the usual 60-40 portfolio is being slaughtered. Uh, and I mean, I guess right about every usual asset manager out there holds sort of an allocation 
sort of resembling such a 60-40 uh, portfolio setup. Um, so this is really bad news for your local asset manager, uh, no matter where you uh, are located across the globe. Um, and I think in, in the context of that, it, it becomes even more relevant to talk about macro, to talk about how to position um, in such an environment for uh, the negative surprises that may arise from such a central bank policy. Um, to be very honest, um, on a personal level, I, I, I tend to think that they will overdo this now, the Federal yeah. Reserve, since they really try to enforce this message. Um, and uh, as I said initially, they couldn't care less about the consequences because they know that it is the main task to get inflation down now and whether um, the side effects will be more unemployed or uh, a drop in house prices or a drop in asset prices. Well, um, it, it doesn't really matter. Quoting Powell himself, this is the unfortunate but necessary pain required to bring inflation down. He also channeled his inner Volcker, refer, referring to um, a bit uh, the experience of the beginning of the 80s, late 70s, when Volcker was trying to bring inflation down and he succeeded. And then when core inflation slowed, slowed down on a month-on-month -month basis, he then dropped interest rates back again, and that kind of spurred the second leg up. And in the end, it took three to five years for Volcker to sort it out. And he doesn't want to go through the same mistake, Andreas. I think what Powell wants to do here is to make sure, and it was very clear, that nominal Fed funds need to be above realized CPI at that very point in time for a sustained period of time. So positive observed real Fed funds rate, which is really a very mechanical, restrictive uh, and, and, you know, quite long time frame uh, restrictive policy mm -hmm. to apply. Yeah, definitely. But I mean, given the supply side concerns that we still have around the globe, uh, I think he's sort of right in taking this approach because, I mean, the supply side issues, they won't be resolved in, say, 12 or 24 months from now. So as soon as you allow the demand side to sort of re-increase, yeah. should you start cutting interest rates, then we will be back faced with the same issues uh, of too much demand relative to supply. Um, so I think the sad truth here is that maybe in particular in Europe, uh, but also in the US, that we will sort of take some sort of permanent hit to wealth for a period of time. Um, as a consequence of this, because as long as the supply side is not able to cope with demand, there is no other alternative than to bring demand permanently down to the supply curve. Yeah. That's what he's telling us. Yeah, it's basically, I remember the criticism of uh, my theory of Fed pivot, my ass, basically, which I tried to put to put across right in February or March, that A, off, but it's all supply driven. I mean, why would the Fed or the ECB have to tighten? Well, they just have a big hammer and the only thing they can solve is demand. And if they need to do four times the damage to demand to offset the supply constraints, well, if inflation becomes a danger, the only thing they can do is indeed to do that. And there are consequences, but again, their mandate is not to avoid a recession. Their first mandate is price stability. And that's what they're after right now. When I talk about Europe, I just want to, want to pick your brain and make a comment about that. First of all, we have Italian elections this Sunday. Um, and here on the macro trading floor, people will listen to somebody with an Italian accent that will unpack those, uh, <laughs> those results. Um, but most, more interestingly, you talked about a permanent wealth it uh, to the European mm -hmm. private sector, which I think is a much more interesting discussion than just talking about whether Germany will go through a back blackout this winter, which for macro and markets is almost irrelevant, although maybe a sad situation. So what's your, uh, what's your take there on the, on the long-term um, consequences of this energy situation? 
Europe will manage this winter. So let's put that discussion aside. The issue here is next winter, the year after that, because, um, I mean, the gas is not flowing for Russia. We have a little bit of gas flowing via Ukraine, um, I think 40 BCM still. Uh, but I mean, Putin is, is obviously capable of closing down uh, yeah. that gas flow as well. Um, so, I mean, by the end of the day, we need to replace this gas with something next year and next the year after. We managed to replace that gas this year at a, I mean, humongous cost. Uh, and we should remember that the gas flow was actually pretty decent from January until mid-July and even partly into August, right? That will not be the case next year. Zero flows, right? Unless something magically yeah. happens to our relationship to Russia. Uh, and I mean, there is no feasible way of replacing natural gas in our energy system on a two to three year horizon. I simply don't see it. Um, LNG can make up for some of the difference. Um, we can obviously shift from natural gas to heating oil to, to a certain extent. But I mean, those are, those are not feasible um, medium term solutions. Um, and therefore, I think the sad truth is that we will have to take some sort of medium term, if not permanent, then medium term hit to the private sector wealth. Um, because if you if you need to bring down demand to where supply is in Europe, if we deduct the gas supply, right? Then we're talking about, I don't know, at, at least a 10% hit to the overall wealth of it's Europe. Massive. It's it's a massive. And obviously, you can try and redirect some of it, as you say, or replace some of it. In the long term, you might be able to succeed in doing that, although at a cost, obviously. Uh, but in the short term, short to medium term, two to three to five years, it's a really complicated exercise. And I find that discussion much more relevant than whether Germany or UK is going to go through a blackout. Talking about UK and blackouts, by the way, Andreas, we hope not to get a blackout when at least I will be at the Digital Asset Summit, which this time will be held in London. So that's the, that's the sister conference of the New York conference I've been to already. It was a really awesome one. Very, very nice people there. Very informative conference, which basically combines the world of macro and digital assets together. There will be speakers of high level, as always. I will be there as well. And uh, maybe you never knows. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, I'm on honeymoon during October, <laughs> but um, I, I'm trying to convince my wife to join, <laughs> to be able to join. Not, uh, I won't uh, let her go to the conference. I don't think she she cares about uh, crypto and macro to the extent that I do. Um, but um, I will actually be in Italy all of October. So let's see whether I I will make it to London. Um, it's uh, October 17, 18 um, in in London at the Royal Lancaster Hotel. And uh, this is basically the event to go to if you are a uh, hedge fund, a family office, uh, an asset manager interested in the sort of relationship between macro and digital assets. And a lot of good speakers are uh, are present at the conference. For example, you, Elf, maybe me, uh, let's see. And um, you can uh, find a discount code um, to buy tickets uh, below in the description here, also a link to the uh, to the ticket page. So the discount code is macro and you get 20% off if you use that discount code to buy tickets for the Digital Asset Summit in uh, London in uh, mid-October. So hope to see you there, guys. Um, but um, let's move on to the interview because, I mean, we've, we've found a guy, Alfonso, who's really capable of talking about portfolio construction in relation to this inflationary regime shift. Um, so let's get to it.
It is now our great pleasure to introduce the guest of the week at the macro trading floor, Bob Elliott, the co-founder and CEO of Unlimited. It's a great pleasure to have you here, Bob. Thanks, guys. I uh, really appreciate you uh, having me on. This is almost your baptism in, pod in the podcast world. I'm not sure if it is exactly the first episode you record. It is. It is. You you folks are, are the first. Uh, so uh, so I, I appreciate uh, the offer to... For having me on. And uh, Bob, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were also the deputy CIO at Bridgewater before getting on your role. At That's, right. That's right. So you have some experience to share with us, I would say. And let's start by making fool of ourselves and calling the Fed wrong, because we are recording on the 21st of September, just before the Fed meeting. So the first question I'm going to ask you is what Powell is going to do tonight. What are they going to do? One of 75 or 100 and say that they're going to keep tightening until you know, they see inflation come down. Um, and so, you know, my guess is we're not going to get much meaningful incremental information here, um, which is normal in a, in a Fed, uh, in a Fed meeting. Like if, if it's working well, you're not getting a lot of incremental information from the Fed because the Fed's backward looking and just processing what's in front of them um, rather than forward looking, which is what we have to do is as traders in the market, we have to see where the Fed's likely to go before the Fed has any idea that they're likely to get there. So, you know, that's, it's kind of uh, um, all the interesting stuff related to what the Fed's going to do has already happened. And then, you know, we'll see what plays out and maybe there'll be a surprise or maybe they won't. But, you know, I think what's more interesting is what's going to happen over the next three, six, nine, 12 months from a trading perspective. So let's try and look forward a bit here, uh, Bob, uh, instead of uh, trying to to forecast this. Plus that, plus that way, I don't have to. I don't have to uh, have the concern of being flat wrong uh, in terms of uh, of that when when it actually transpires versus when we recorded this. <laughs> exactly, yeah, Bob. But if we look, say, six, nine months ahead, um, it's been quite a while since we've had inflation running six, seven percentage points above target in, in the US and elsewhere around the globe, as we have currently. So what do you think of central bank reaction functions in the context of inflation running that far above target? Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the I like to say one of the features and one of the bugs of central banking is that it is backward looking in nature. And so in a lot of ways, what the Fed or the ECB is likely to do is relatively prescribed in the sense of inflation is high, it's much higher than they, they desire. And so they have to keep tightening until the point where they are in a position where they can be confident that inflation is starting to, to turn meaningfully or that or the financial conditions have deteriorated so much is obvious that inflation is likely to deteriorate. And so, you know, one of the things that that, that creates is basically a, a constant, constantly being behind the curve in terms of what they're doing relative to what's transpiring. And given where we are in the cycle, like pretty much there's no way that we're gonna see inflation in a position where you know it's it's anywhere close to what either the Fed or the ECB or the BOE wants, even you know three, six, nine months from now, um, it's it's going to take a while. And what that means is they're going to keep tightening until they until they basically see the break, either the break in financial conditions, which is probably more likely to happen faster, that or they see a break in the actual inflation conditions, which is 
possible. It's certainly possible something could happen there. Um, but it would, you know, they they need to see one of those two things before they start to flip to a to an easing situation. So, Bob, um, I tweeted a few hours ago the example of the late seventies where core inflation month on month uh, during the Volcker era went down, but not in a straight line. I mean, it was 1% month on month, and then it was down 2.3. Then it went up to 0.6 again. So it wasn't really a smooth ride all the way down to an acceptable level of core inflation, say 0.2 month on month. So my question for you is, where is do you think there is a trade-off between uh, a couple of sequential months of decline in, in uh, monthly core inflation and where financial conditions are? Like, do you feel the Fed is going to, at some point, declare half victory? Or it is really like we're going to break the back of inflation consistently because we don't want to make the mistake of the late 70s again? I think if you, if you go back to the period there, and actually Volcker in his book, Changing Fortunes, has a, it's a series of, um, of lectures he did uh, about a decade after that period. It's just very interesting to hear how he processed living through that experience, like the uncertainty, the the ambiguity, the challenge of figuring out what the right policy path was. So, I mean, that's the first thing I'd say is, is you know, having read that and, and seen that, you just have to appreciate just how uncertain all of this is in these periods, what the linkages are with the sensitivity of asset prices to economic conditions, all of that is really uncertain. And so I think, the biggest lesson, frankly, from the Volcker era, which took, you know, three years and successive tightenings and easings and inflation went up and went down, was they would have been a lot better off having held the line early in order to crack the inflation rather than kind of being responsive, frankly, to the political pressures at the time to ease when they started to see a deterioration in economic conditions. And so, you know, Powell, just like Bernanke, are students of history. They understand the lessons of those periods. Um, and I think, you know, particularly have coming on the heels of having been behind the curve on the upswing, the idea that they're going to, you know, immediately pivot in the right immediately when they start to see the, the, mo the mod most modest amount of deflationary, disinflationary pressures. I think that's unrealistic. Um, I'd also say, I think it's really important to recognize that if they do, it is also self-defeating. And that's, and that's really the, from a, from a trader's perspective, I think that's an important thing to be thinking about, which is, let's say Powell pivoted tomorrow, right? Let's say today he says, we're done. We've done enough tightening. We're going to take a break, take it easy for six months. What's going to happen? Stocks are going to surge, right? Bond yields are going to fall, and it's going to be hugely stimulative to the economy, which then just only amps up the inflationary pressure in the future. And so it, in that sense, even if Powell goes through the process of easing a little too early, the same outcome, probably even a worse outcome, is probably necessary to finally get to the point where inflation is broken. Uh, Bob, if we look at the ramifications for asset allocation sort of through the lens of the highly inflationary period in the late 70s and early 80s, what are some of the lessons learned from an asset allocation perspective through such uh, highly inflationary periods? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the biggest thing is um, most portfolios. Most portfolios, if you look at how they're built today, strategically, we're talking, we're sort of talking 
constructing a, a beta portfolio, sort of putting our alpha views on the side. If you look at beta portfolios today, they're basically built on the lessons learned from 1985 to 2020 um, or 2022, right? Like that's kind of how they're built. And how are they built? They're basically bonds and stocks, which were a great set of portfolio diversifiers over time, um, over that period. And in a disinflationary cycle, that's exactly the portfolio you want to hold. But I think it's really important to recognize that that is a terrible portfolio through an inflationary cycle. Um, and the vast majority of everyday investors are totally unprepared to experience this dynamic um, because they're not holding assets that would typically do pretty well in inflation upswing as well as the downswing following an inflation upswing. So things like commodities, uh, you know, um, industrial commodities, oil, gold. I know it hasn't done so well in the tightening side of this, but, um, but it's a good portfolio diversifier, right? You're trying to build a diversified portfolio of assets. Um, and that sort of combination of assets is going to do better than a set of assets that's highly concentrated in disinflation, in, in addition, disinflationary uh, cycle. Now, to be clear, that doesn't mean that assets in general are going to do well. It just means if you're going to protect yourself as well as possible, you're going to want to have that portfolio of assets. So. I'd add one other thing, um, which is it's also a time... If you look over the last 10 years or 12 years, basically all the all the traders of the market have learned that like buying the index and things like that are the best thing to do. And I think, um, you know, to to promote us, all us alpha traders out there, this is a time where alpha trading really does shine, where you have the ability to go long and short. You have that flexibility. You have the ability to respond. And so in addition to finding a more diversified beta portfolio, bringing high quality alphas to your portfolio today, I think is really, really critical to weathering the storm and preserving your capital um, during this you know, pretty unusual environment. So Bob, basically the levered beta capturing that we have seen over the last, whatever, 20 years, is a strategy that won't work because it relies on one main driver underlying the, uh, the macro portfolio performance, which is a disinflationary trend, right? With, Real growth also not really disappointing. So in general, nominal growth being low and trending down effectively, right? So you're, you're not going to get that again because the cocktail is changing here. Uh, and you mentioned a couple of assets that you think are going to do, generally are going to provide a better risk-adjusted return or a better diversifier in the portfolio than bonds. So let's start with gold because you mentioned that. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to start from what this what was supposed to be. I published a meme a while ago that said, hey, I predicted inflation at 8%. And the guy was like, hey, how much money did you do? Well, I bought gold. So I didn't make any money. <laughs> so that's been a sad reality for many gold bugs that actually counted on that environment. So can you walk us through what's happening in gold and how do you see gold forward into, uh, into a portfolio asset allocation? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to recognize what what drives gold. Gold is really a trade-off between non-interest-bearing money and interest-bearing money. Like, that's really what it is. Um, and so when you get environments of rising real interest rates in particular, right, which is basically adding to the, the real return of cash, you typically would expect to see some 
some underperformance of, um, of gold relative to cash. Um, and that's basically what you've seen. Now, at the same time, the magnitude of the underperformance that you've seen um, of gold relative to the move that we've seen in real interest rates has been relatively modest. You know, gold has held, the purpose of holding gold is not as, um, as, as something that's gonna, gonna radically outperform in the middle of uh, in, a normal inflationary or disinflationary cycle. The reason why you hold gold is because it helps protect the tail risk, whether it's an extreme deflationary environment or an extreme inflationary environment. And that's really the value of it, which is why a good strategic allocation to gold is something like 10%. It's not 50%. It's not the only thing that you have in your portfolio. It's just, it's an important diversifier that does particularly well in tailed environments. And that, you know, is that likely to happen right now? Probably not, but it's not, um, it's certainly not unheard of. And if you go back through time, if you were sitting in, you know, Germany in, uh, you know, just after World War One, or Germany in World War Two, or Japan, or many emerging market cycles, like you would be happy as a clam that you held gold <laughs> through those cycles. And so you just have to, we have a very like US, you know, global reserve currency kind of focus in in this world. And, you know, that's, that's just not how the world necessarily works. That's not the total distribution of outcomes. And so that's why, you know, you hold gold in that way. If we look at the um, commodity complex overall, since, say, mid-June, we've actually seen a slide in prices, both in the oil price and the copper price and, and elsewhere in the commodity space. What do you make of the overall commodity complex in relation to a Fed that is trying to sort of tighten its way uh, back to the inflation target? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a good, good question. I think part of it, um, so the fact that commodities have fallen as, Tightening has increased and expectations of, you know, future growth have fallen um, is not that surprising. Um, I think the the main question when you're thinking about commodities, let's say now turning from uh, a more strategic allocation to, to thinking about it from an alpha perspective, is commodities inevitably are arbitrageable to physical supply and demand. Physical supply and demand, we've had basically a decade of underinvestment in all sorts of different commodities, and there's nuances between one certain ones versus other ones, but by and large, there's been meaningful underinvestment. Demand, even in slow growth environments, continues to rise across most commodities. Um, of course, there's nuances between certain ones, but that sort of physical supply demand constriction, right, that the market going into deficit stocks uh, starting to deplete, certainly on a seasonally adjusted basis across certain commodities. Those are the indications that you've got uh, a, a possibility of a real squeeze on the long side of commodities. And so I think when you're thinking about a diversified portfolio, now thinking about alpha, you want to think about both your central case, which we've talked about, which is basically, you know, I think short assets in general tactically um, is, you know, makes a lot of sense given the environment we're in. But then you also, but you could be wrong. We could be wrong about that. The Fed could pivot. Inflation can come down for all sorts of reasons that we're not expecting. And so you want to hold assets 
or hold positions that would benefit in the circumstance that you're wrong. And of all the positions that could benefit in the circumstance that you're wrong, the ones that seem the most highly levered, the best value that's out there seem like commodities. So you could easily get that trade wrong, get your central case right, make money overall, but it would still be a good position to be holding in the context of an overall alpha portfolio. Which makes sense, actually. So it's all about protecting your real purchasing power at the end of the day, uh, especially in these environments, Bob, rather than looking at, trying to deliver the same volatility adjusted returns, total returns that we were able to do between 1990 and 2020 simply by sitting on QQQs and a bond as a hedge, basically. If you think about it, it was quite, That's right. quite an easy time eh? for, for, for a, a simple investor, let's say. Those times are over, so it's rather alpha over beta. So um, I want to discuss for a second with you um, the role, what's going on in 60-40 portfolios as well and the role of bonds specifically because you on Twitter you have been, and by the way, your Twitter profile is awesome. People should go and follow you straight away if they don't. Um, you have discussed a couple of... Thank you. I appreciate that. Bob, it's, all, it's all the content you deliver. Uh, look, the, the bond story, I, I've heard you say a couple of times that you're waiting for the point where long-end bonds will start to overperform equities. It doesn't mean they will perform, but they should overperform equities. So can you elaborate on that view? Why do you think that is a, something that could happen? Yeah, I, mean, I think the way that this tightening cycle is flowing through is typically what you see is you see a, a rise in, in interest rates, which in, creates a rise in discount rates. That rise in discount rates basically affects all assets with all cash flows into the future, and particularly those with more duration and affects more, like tech stocks and things like that, venture capital, stuff like that, uh, and less so for things with less duration. But basically, there's just a discounting that exists in the whole market, and assets are priced off of it. And if you look at how stocks have moved so far, US stocks have moved so far in aggregate at the index level, basically the decline in stocks so far has been on par with the move uh, in, in long bonds. Um, and what that implies, if you just think about all stocks are earnings discounted by a, by a set of um, interest rates, what that implies is that there hasn't been much of a shift in expectations of earnings priced into stocks. I think that's particularly interesting because the way that this is going to end in terms of how inflation is going to be broken is through recession. Like anyone who thinks that there's going to be a soft landing is totally wrong. <laughs> anyone who thinks that we're going to have some very modest, mild, shallow recession, totally wrong. If you look back through time, in all cases where you've broken inflation, it's required a significant economic deterioration in one form or another. And if you look at the way that the stock market is priced right now, it's just not priced that way. It's priced simply based upon the change in the discount rate. And so that's why I, I think we're going to start to transition to a point, you know, it's been weeks that I've been talking about this and I'm sort of looking for the signs of whether we're going to get there. We're not there yet, obviously, but there's going to be a point where bonds start to outperform stocks. And that's indicative of the finally recognizing that you're going to have an earnings recession. And I think that's important because I think that'll be one of the first recognitions 
that the cycle might be turning because you're going to need to get the earnings recession and the stock declines, particularly relative to the bonds, in order to start to get to the hit to wealth effect, in order to start to get to the slowing of nominal spending, in order to start to get to the weakening of uh, the labor market, in order to get to finally <laughs> nominal, you know, nominal growth starting to fall and inflation falling. Like that's the whole progression. And we're at the beginning. We're still at the beginning, despite hundreds of basis points of rises. We're still at the beginning of that cycle, which is important to recognize. Let's assume, Bob, for a second that we will be faced with an earnings recession in the upcoming quarters alongside a slide in the overall inflation pressure, maybe even leading to performance in the long bond, right? So you have a compression of the discount factor while you have a um, compression of the earnings expectations alongside it. Which factor will matter the most? For yeah, I mean, the, the beta of earnings to economic conditions just is very high relative to the amount of move that you would expect to have happen in the bond yield. And so uh, I, I, I think there are, I think there are reasonable visualizations where you, you start to say, okay, well, what's going to actually, the reason why stocks aren't going down is because what's going to happen is we're going to have an earnings recession and the bond yields are going to fall and then everything's going to be okay. And I think the, the thing that, that doesn't reconcile that sort of visualization with what's likely to play out is the fact that we need to have asset price declines in order to have nominal spending slow in order to have inflation ease. Right, that is the cycle, and I think we've sort of we've sort of like missed on the on the upside over the last twelve years. You know, since the financial crisis, that is how this worked, which is there was massive monetary easing, which led to massive uh, asset price increases, which led to, frankly, kind of okay growth. Right, like you know, good, better than it would have been otherwise. But like, if you know, it took the S&P 500 going up 200% to get okay growth in the economy. And I think part of that reflects that there isn't a great connection. It's not that tight a connection between asset price moves and economic activity. And so you would expect the same thing to some extent on the downside, which is it's going to take a fair amount of tightening and asset price declines to start to bring down the economic activity um, that's going on. So it's too early for bonds, especially at the front end, because, oh, I mean, holy crap, the, basically the market is pricing in four and a half percent terminal rates, and it's just chasing the Fed and the ECB basically to deliver more and more. So the front end of the bond market, no touch. The long end, yeah, the curve is flattening, but it's still like the front end is dragging higher in yields the long end. So difficult to get long there as well. It's too early anyway, let's say. Stock market, let's not even discuss it because the discount rate goes up and earnings are about to fall. Good luck with that. You can't touch those. Gold is being busted because it's an alternative to interest rate bearing money and the interest, interest bearing money is actually getting repriced up. So gold as an alternative goes down. All right, cool. Commodities, we discussed a bit, the long term, short term. We can't get long anything, Bob. So we are at the point. <laughs> <laughs> wow, when you when you put it all together, it's quite a depressing conversation, doesn't it? <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, and again, we are not playing heroes. We don't need. We don't. We, we mustn't be long something. It's all about protecting purchasing power. Sometimes it's all about just keeping cash and, and being protect and being defensive. This leads me to ask you, what's the trade for the macro trading floor? Because it's time now to put something actionable on the table. 
Right. I mean, I think the core of it is that um, is being short assets until we start to see the types of cracks that are necessary to uh, start to, to change the monetary policy dynamics. And so a lot of different ways you could do that. You could do it within your portfolio in all sorts of different ways in terms of cutting your duration or increasing you know, your cash holdings, your holdings of short-term risk, or, or, or even shifting your equities to more value-oriented equities versus growth-oriented equities relative to the benchmark. There's lots of different ways to do that. A simple way to do that is, um, is short RPAR, the ETF, which is the risk parity ETF, a nice balanced uh, portfolio of assets that, um, that captures it, you know, captures this well and is an easy trade to just put on specifically. But, you know, I think many, many investors can find many ways to incrementally put themselves in a more defensive position. And frankly, um, you know, when we look at uh, when we look at the most sophisticated investors in the world, you know, the, the hedge fund community and and you know what what we do at Limited is we we basically look at use technology to infer what hedge fund positioning is in in relatively real time from uh, from their returns information. What we see is basically positioning in this way, which is equity managers very very conservative. You know, value-oriented versus growth-oriented macro managers have very low risk in assets and aggregate relative to history. And and in general, and I think this speaks to the the environment. We see that these sophisticated asset managers they're basically they're at the tenth percentile of their risk level relative to the last twenty years, which I think really highlights just how uncertain this environment is. So you know, we can we can talk here with some confidence that this trade versus that trade versus that trade. And in reality, we should all recognize that none of us have seen this type of cycle. The cycle is very hard to predict. And so to be conservative in order to preserve capital in this environment is one of the smartest things you can do. So Bob, we always allow our guests an early exit option <laughs> on the trades that you have. <laughs> so, um, you're obviously uh, trying to short a risk parity basket here. Uh, what would make a risk parity strategy thrive on the long side? What could make you wrong in your assessment? Here? Easing, 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 easing. I mean, uh, all, all that <laughs> yeah. trade is, is just a trade-off between cash and assets, financial assets, which to be clear, over long periods of time, you expect assets to outperform cash. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's, it's how, you know, how the, the basics of uh, capitalism work, right? You take cash, you hand them to other people who, who basically use them, use that cash and provide cash flows in return. And so over time, you'd expect that. But what we have now is you see periods of time when assets underperform cash during periods of tightening. Um, and then, you know, typically what you see is you see that assets outperform cash during periods of easing, um, and so or early stages of tightening when when the when the tightening is not so much that it's attempting to turn the cycle, and so you know it is it is not you know, we we can talk about our central case. We also have to visualize other plausible cases. There, let's say you know there's an oil supply supply shock in the sense of 
there's a lot more oil that's brought to the market for some reason, and that creates a disinflationary pressure, or um, or some of the supply chain pressures get reversed, or you know, or what happens is this tightening cycle. You know, we wake up in the next month or two, and we and all of a sudden nominal spending collapses, and that's possible. That's definitely possible, um, but. You know, it's not not the base case, but that would be the case in which you would expect assets to do particularly well relative to cash. Or otherwise, Bob, we get a very nice soft lending, and then earnings can deliver, right? And, and, right. You know, and risk soft. assets can do can do fine. Mm. You never know. You never know. Right, right. The soft landing. I mean, it's it's, I, you know, the challenge with that is it just goes back to the same the thing we were talking about before, which is the soft landing basically creates the stimulation, which creates the continuation of the inflationary cycle. And that's, and that is, I mean, I think what you put out this morning, just showing that dynamic through the seventies and seeing that's how it played out, which is there was tightening and then it led to inflation coming down and then there was easing and then that re-stimulated the inflation and that happened a few times. And like, you know, that, but ultimately what did it take? It took a 30% drawdown in assets relative to trend to finally break inflation. And if we look on the equivalent today, we're about we're down about 10% relative to trend. Um, we were much higher. Uh, part of the reason it's been an abrupt decline, but we were well above trend in terms of asset uh, prices before this downturn. So, you know, will it take us a 30% decline in asset prices relative to trend today? I, I'm not sure. Uh, will it be more? Will it be less? I, I really don't know. Um, and so that's why I think you're better off sort of positioning and, and, and frankly, like being nimble to seeing the signs of the cracking rather than trying to say, in, you know, trying to pick some particular number of what, you know, interest rates have to go to or some particular number of what stock prices have to go to to get the, the outcomes that lead to the decline in inflation. History also suggests, Bob, that... Uh... All the 100 episodes, uh, sorry, all the 11 episodes over the last 100 years where we entered the recession in the US with inflation above, way above the Fed target, we always exited the recession with inflation back at the Fed target. It took sometimes longer, sometimes a shorter period of time, but a recession and sharp declines in asset prices always achieve the objective. It's not a desirable outcome, but hey, Powell said it in Jackson Hole. It's the, what did he say, the unnecessary pain or whatever he called that. It was very strong wording. Bob, it's been a pleasure to have you here on the Macro Trading Floor. Before, you let, before we let you go, um, why don't you tell people where to find more about you? Yeah, for sure. Thanks, uh, thanks so much for having me. It's been, been a lot of fun here on, uh, on the first podcast uh, that I've done. Um, you guys can find me uh, on Twitter at Bob E. Unlimited, um, or uh, if you want to learn more about uh, what we're doing at Unlimited, creating low-cost index replication ETFs for Two and twenty products. You can find it at unlimitedfunds.com. Um, so, really appreciate you guys uh, having me on. Uh, it was it was quite a pleasure. Thank you, Bob. It's uh, been a pleasure watching you. You lose your podcast virginity. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think we were going to go there, <laughs> but we did. <laughs>
Um, very good guest, if you ask me. Very compelling thesis. East Trade. Uh, the interview was recorded on the 21st of September, just before the Fed meeting, which makes the timing of East Trade exceptional, to say the least. Um, he has been pretty consistent and still is short the RPAR ETF. RPAR stands for Risk Parity ETF which is, you know, you can borrow the ETF, of course, and sell it. But at the end of the day, Andreas, this is nothing else than short any a traditional asset that smells like a traditional asset. So equity, bonds, gold, whatever, uh, just be short assets effectively, right? So what do you make of the trade? Well, um, I think it's a really interesting take given the meltdown and correlations that we've seen this year. Um, so one of the reasons why risk parity strategies worked so well uh, for a prolonged period of time between 2010 and 2020 was that we had fairly stable correlations between the various asset classes. And um, this, this is essentially sort of a cornerstone in a risk parity strategy uh, that you can sort of um, mix the um, uh, strategy between assets in a relatively stable correlation regime. But try and look at the correlation between U.S. equities and U.S. bonds. To just take an example this year, uh, the correlation has basically flipped from positive to negative, right? Um, so, I, I mean, this is a material game changer for port portfolio construction all around the globe uh, because usually you would have expected bonds to cushion your performance by now. Uh, but, I mean, the, it's even doing worse that as class than equities more or less right yes. um and i have to admit that um that breakdown of correlations i didn't really foresee that to be honest in my own portfolio construction um but i mean it's very clear from historical evidence as soon as you sort of break four to five percent in the core inflation measure uh, something happens to correlations um because all of a sudden the bond space is not really the safe haven yeah. it used to be um so spot on from Bob. We have to admit that. Exceptional point on the correlation. It's very, very important in portfolio construction. So first, a small anecdote on that. With one of the um, hedge funds, family offices, so, uh, I'm advising on a one-to-one -one at the beginning of the year, we looked into basically doing a trade that break that bets on a break of this correlation between TLT and SPY, right? Or anything that is a long end bond and, and, a, and, a, and an equity. And when we checked for a price, what came up on the other side was, you know, I'm, I'm going I'm to price you very, very cheap because, you know, this is basically looking at the last 10 years of evidence. This correlation almost mm. never broke. And as soon as it broke, Andres, it immediately reverted back to old habits because inflation and inflation expectations were so low that you could always expect the central bank to come up and rescue the wealth effect channel, basically, by lowering interest rates accommodative financial conditions to make sure that you know the wealth effect continued and spending continued and inflation expectation actually re uh, revived again and now you can't expect that anymore you just can't expect that anymore and the fact that investors are basically often looking at one regime only when assuming the correlations will hold it's one of the most dangerous things to do for a long-term portfolio because yeah, once correlation break, actually, it's it's you, you have no diversifiers, you're no defenders in your portfolio anymore. So it's important to always keep keep your mind very open. And rather than just look at a chart of rolling correlations and say, hey, this is uncorrelated or hey, this is correlated. One thing that I learned is ask yourself, why is that supposed to be correlated? Is there a, a really a macro underlying driver that makes those things correlated or uncorrelated? And is that holding over time? 
So the way to sort of proxy trade Bob Elliott's view is essentially to be short assets yes. <laughs> overall, at least assets uh, usually included in the risk parity strategy. So bonds and equities will, will make up a very large portion of that. Um, and uh, as we mentioned initially, this episode is, is sponsored by Saxo Bank and Saxo Bank actually offers uh, almost unparalleled market coverage also in ETFs. Uh, so you can trade them at a very low commission at the um, Saxo Trader. Uh, so if you want to sort of learn more about the offering from Saxo Bank, you can uh, uh, learn more at go-to.saxo/macrofx, and we'll uh, also make sure to add this link in the description uh, below on your podcast app and on YouTube if you are watching the show instead of listening to it. Interesting times, Alf. Um, I mean, have you done? Sort of any thoughts in terms of your structural allocation in relation to this correlation breakdown? I have done a lot of thought about being slaughtered because I tried to buy bonds. Uh, you know, I thought to myself, I basically from the beginning of the year, I'm sitting on a lot of dollar cash. Great. I don't have any equities or very, very little. Great. And then I'm like, now I can afford at some point. It was in 22nd of June, third year treasuries were like 325, 330%. I thought, you know, maybe it's about time that I actually lift some. I think that if the Fed forces a further repricing of the front end, the curve is going to invert so much that ultimately the back end will kind of stay there. Maybe it goes to three and a half, but not higher than that. So I want to start accumulating these long bonds, anticipating further downgrades in earnings, nominal growth. And as the Fed pins the front end, the more the real economy weakens, the more the back end is supposed to reflect that. That was the thought, right? My shirt says it be humble or the market will humble you. This is the time where you get humbled by markets because, well, the front end has now reprised so much that even if the curve keeps flattening, the back end still gets pushed higher by a very sharp repricing of the front end. So the timing hasn't been good over the medium term, Andreas. The way I, I look at this is that you are in a, in a quadrant, in a regime that basically doesn't allow you to own assets. It basically is as simple as that. So you have deteriorating macro conditions and you have the central bank, which is setting monetary policy very tight for very long, looking at the most lagging indicators of all to change their mind, which is core inflation. I have seen you, though, point out to a couple of forward-looking indicators for inflation, for example, the NFIB uh, price, pays, uh, price paid, I think, or, or a price um, estimate there. Can you talk us a little bit about that? Because maybe there is some light at the end of the tunnel for core inflation, and that, that changes quite a lot of stuff. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, let me try and be humble here as well, because I've been blatantly wrong since midsummer on this view, uh, at least in nominal terms when it comes to inflation. Uh, but uh, the way I've traded it is that I've been short commodities, mm -hmm. Uh, I've been long the TLTs or long bonds, and then I've been net long U the US dollar via a spread trade in US equities versus German yeah. equities. Um, the relative performance in that equity trade has been pretty lackluster over the past uh, weeks here as well, because it's essentially a positive beta trade yeah. that spread. But the point is that I, I've been long dollar. Uh, via the via the trade um, indirectly, which has sort of helped cushion that. Uh, so overall, that portfolio has actually done okay. Mm -hmm. um, even if I've been sort of wrong on the nominal inflation outlook. But, I mean, traded inflation, we should remember that. So it, it, traded expectations of inflation has been falling off yeah, a cliff. Yeah, of course. Um, so, I, I, I mean, it's, it's actually been the right view if you sort of looked 
on inflation in isolation. I know. Um, the issue here is that um, the central bank is sort of moving in the opposite direction of the inflation market. Uh, and and uh, I mean, I've been absolutely caught wrong-footed on that. Uh, but if we look at the forward-looking gauges now, um, one thing is that um, in traded inflation expectations um, basically look for even lower inflation than what was priced in um, already during the spring and early summer. Um, probably a, 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 a retracement towards 2% already by, by late next year. Um, that's one thing. Second thing is that if you ask companies, so basically the companies setting the price in the real economy, they've they've started to tell us that, well, we're not going to hike prices to the extent that we did a few months yeah. ago. Uh, and that's particularly true for, for the small and medium-sized companies. We don't have the same signals for the large ones yet. Uh, but this survey among SMEs, so the NFIB survey, um, it's it's obviously not a good predictor on a month-by-month -month basis, but with a six-month time lag, it's a pretty decent sort of directional indicator for inflation. So I try to say it again, core inflation is substantially low in six months from now. I think it is. I think, Andreas, that uh, we can call it a day here on the macro trading floor. Before we do that, though, I'd like to remind people that, A, the episode is sponsored by Saxo Bank. So in case you want to check out or implement any of the trade ideas we discussed here, go on the Saxo Trader platform. You can use the link that it's in the description here uh, to check out uh, the platform. It's a very good one. Andreas and I use it ourselves. Uh, we can actually testify for that. And the second is, again, I'm going to be at the Digital Asset Summit uh, conference in London, October 1718. You can buy tickets for 20% off using the code MACRO. You find all the information below the podcast as well. That was it, Andreas. Yeah, yeah. And um, remember to um, to rate our podcast out there in each of the podcast apps. It it helps us provide this free content each and uh, every Sunday. So hopefully you enjoyed the content again this Sunday. We will be back with more in exactly one week from now. I'm Andreas. Stiel. And I'm Alfonso Pecatillo. See you guys next Sunday. <laughs>